2: Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad,
3: if
1: you two are finished comparing sizes,
2: Mackey and Judd on 1500 ESPA
3: From the Pro Football Focus headquarters in Cincinnati, Eric Eager. Eric, how are you?
4: I'm doing well, how about you?
3: I am doing very well. You were recently a Wisconsinonian and moved to Cincinnati, so how's that working out for you?
4: Pretty well. It's a little hot here, for my take, but it's okay.
3: It's it's hotter in Cincinnati than Wisconsin? Yep. Oh, I you know what? Didn't study my climates before asking the question. That's uh that's just being unprepared on my part. You didn't
0: grind the tape enough.
3: <laughs> How's their cheese?
4: I I think I said this on the podcast. I don't actually eat cheese, so I wouldn't know.
3: Oh. Well, so you're fine. You're fine. We're with batting
0: the like a thousand yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah, I,
3: I already I knew the answer to that one and we I was get back I upset.
4: Vikings up. wind totals. For you guys to you know get back on track. I know. I I was actually setting you
3: up for that one to make a Wisconsin joke because we're in Minnesota. Anyway, so Eric, where I want to start with you is Pro Football Focus came out this offseason with absurdly detailed analysis of every quarterback in the NFL, which obviously includes Kirk Cousins. And some of the numbers on Kirk Cousins from 2017 do not paint him in the best light. But there is also the fact that his offensive line struggled. He lost a couple of key wide receivers. So how should we go about setting our expectations for Kirk Cousins when the difference between his 2017 supporting cast and this one for Minnesota is so much different?
4: Yeah, I mean, that's the million-dollar question, right? The fact that, you know, in Washington, um, last season he lost his left tackle. He lost some receivers to free agency. Uh, he had a dynamite running back out of the backfield, and Chris Thompson, that got injured midway through the season, and that certainly took uh, a toll on him. He finished, I believe, 19 in our grades, um, and a lot of his sort of like additional metrics. For example, you know, his grade on third down was 31st in the league last season. So, just it, it took a big toll on him. Prior to last season, he had a pretty decent supporting cast uh, with the Garstones and the Jacksons and the the Reads. Uh, and a good offensive line, and he performs better. Um, so, you know, I'm, from my perspective, I think I'd probably look at 2017 as instructive. So if I'm thinking about is he a quarterback like the Russell Wilsons, like the Tom Brady's that's impervious to outside forces, he's certainly not. Um, but then I might look at the 2016-2015 to sort of see if everything falls into place for him, what is he capable of. And he's capable of being a, you know, top Twelve top 10 quarterback, possibly, in those situations.
0: Sure. Eric, when you take a look at the offensive line issues, I think it was 38 different combinations that he had last year in Washington. I mean, he's having a third-string guy as his right guard. Um, Maybe even a fourth string. Um, How much do you think – are we overplaying? And I think somewhere Matthew and I were talking about this earlier, that the PFF had the Vikings offensive line ranked at 27th. So definitely, you know, even before – uh, you know, mini camp ended. We expected this to be a bottom-tier offensive line just with some of those questions that they have uh at right guard, potentially even at right tackle. How much of that do you think is going to factor into what Cousins does and the success that he needs? Because we know that he can improvise. We know that, um, you know, just some of the struggles that were documented last year, but how much of their success in getting their act, you know, Squared away and together is going to depend on what he's able to do. Just with you know some of the other ways he's that team and that offense is over to co- able to compensate.
4: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we know Cousins was you know middle of the pack in terms of great under pressure, so he's certainly not bad there. As you said, he improvises well. Um, I think you know you look at the the Vikings offensive line and it's you know a story of two seasons. 2016, I think they came into the season with possibly an, e- an equal parts. I think, uh, talent level, but then injuries and a lack of depth really torpedoed their season there. Last year, they came in, you know, and they had some injuries, but they had the flexibility of Berger, and they had, you know, Remmers to some extent, Rashad Hill, a good backup, and they were able able to sort of keep the offense afloat. Case Keenum was very good. He was the second-best quarterback in the NFL in terms of not taking sacks when pressured, so that, you know, that sort of buoyed the offense. The question becomes is, is that offensive line with Verger gone without really much of a veteran upgrade to the interior and some injury question marks on, you know, tackle? Are they able to stay healthy the entire year? And if they stay healthy the entire year, are they going to be able to perform at least sort of in the middle of the pack? Because I think if they're a middle of the pack offense, offensive line group, the wide receivers and the running back are going to elevate that offense to the point where if Cousins is even an average quarterback, that offense is going to be pretty good.
3: When you look at the NFC North, how much do you factor its strength when you're trying to figure out how good the Vikings will end up being?
4: I mean, that that's 100% of it, right? Because we have them, you know, so we have their win total. And I know Courtney's the one that gets crap for being negative, but our win, so win total. So negative. A, <laughs> a little bit. We have them under, under nine wins, and, and that's because, The, the division plays a very difficult schedule. The Vikings, I believe, have the fifth toughest schedule in the NFL. Green Bay sixth in terms of our metrics. Detroit is the ninth toughest schedule. So whomever comes out of that division is, is going to, you know, 10, you know, we think nine, 10, 11 wins will probably do it as opposed to last season, which is the 13. And, and so that's a difficult thing when you place the NFC West. Uh, the Vikings probably have, you know the you know possibly a weaker team in two of those games and the weaker quarterback certainly against Seattle. You face the AFC East, which is weak on you know as in some, but they also have the Patriots, right? So that's a game that's going to be difficult for them. When we try to handicap the league, that's really some place we look. So NFC North has a difficult road. Whomever wins that division is going to go through a tough schedule.
0: Yeah, and I mean that's the whole thing with the Vikings that I don't think you can state it enough because how often do we see situations where a team has a very small potentially Super Bowl window get a brand new offensive coordinator and get a brand new quarterback you don't expect that to be a 12 and 4 season right away and on top of that i think the the straw that breaks the camel's back there is those first 5 weeks of the season when you're on the road at green bay you know then on a short week you're in los angeles and you have 10 days before Philadelphia, but the type of defenses that they're going to get, to going to go against. Where do you, where do you factor that into at least in terms of the overall predictions? And that you know, I'm with you. I think that the division could be decided by a game, if that. I mean, it just because it's so stacked, top heavy between the Packers and the Vikings.
4: Yeah, and not to mention San Francisco. Week one is a team that you know, I would say has a better than 50 percent chance of having a better quarterback than the Vikings, right? And that. And that pushes a lot of the envelope in terms of what wins in the NFL. Um, So, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I think we we factor in everything. We factor in, you know, offensive grades, defensive grades, special teams grades. All those things are baked in there. Um, Like you said, the first five weeks, I mean, you're talking about facing top five teams in the NFL. And I think we all expect Green Bay to be better. You You play that game on the road. Um, it's certainly something that goes in and, and it's going to be tough for whomever comes out of the NFC, NFC North, but the Vikings, we all know that like, how you start a season is, is pretty important. If they start, you know, two and three, it might be, you know, like if they start three and two, they should be very happy. And they could start probably one and four if, if you know, if things turn poorly for them. So uh, that's not a trivial part of, of what our projections uh, for them.
3: Eric Eager joining us from Pro Football Focus. Matthew Collar, Courtney Cronin Informackey and Judd today. Now, Pro Football Focus's numbers have done wonders for certain wide receivers to show us that they are better than what their fantasy numbers suggest based on the efficiency and the success they have when the ball is thrown their way. And at the top of that list is Stefan Diggs. So, Eric, as the league looks at Diggs as a potential free agent for next year, uh, tell us what they would look at as opposed to just the 64 catches from last year, but what things might be a factor or for the Vikings in terms of how much he's going to get paid.
4: Yeah. So we, we do something kind of similar to what baseball does with like a wins above replacement player. And that basically uses our grade. And what I think people will be surprised that if you look at our article on the NFC North, is that Stefan Diggs, among non-quarterbacks is the most valuable player in that division. Um, so and that, you know, if you think about it, people are, people are upset about the things that Diggs doesn't do, which is play, I guess, two extra games a year, you know, and, and catch 100 yards more worth of passes. But what people don't understand is that I think Diggs is, you know, when Keenum throws a pass that's not particularly accurate into coverage, Diggs erases all of those sins by making that catch, right? So the catches he makes are often, if you're going to attribute value, attributing more value to him than the quarterback, and that's relatively rare. He's the, the highest player in terms of contested catch rate in the NFL last season and has been up there for the last two years. So he's somebody who doesn't make a ton of errors, doesn't drop a lot of passes, and then when the ball's in the air for him, he, he's, the, you know, he's securing a lot of those. And Adam Thielen's very similar. His numbers are you know, a little bit lower in terms of those, but of course his production, staying healthy, he's you know, it's been very good there as well.
3: All right, Eric, just one-word answer here before we let you go. If they're going to pay one of the two guys, Diggs or bar, which one is it?
4: Diggs. I don't think it's close.
3: That it wasn't a one-word answer, Eric. That was several words.
4: Math? Yeah, I'm bad at math. So, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, are
3: yeah, we. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely former math professor. Eric Eager definitely struggles in that area. So thank you, Eric, for uh, jumping on, and we will see you around the Purple Podcast all season long.
4: Yeah,
3: thanks for having me. Eric Eager from Pro Football Focus. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. He was a math professor in Wisconsin, Euclair. Is that Eau Claire. Eau Claire, Oh Euclair. Au Claire. Eau Claire. Wow.
0: Eau Claire? Eau Claire. Cool. Go back to the East
3: Coast. It's Wisconsin. I thought we are supposed to disrespect them on purpose. Oh man. Well, no, you at least pronounce their cities, right? Whatever. Especially you can say things like Oshwabanon. Oh, that's a good one. one. Uh, Anyway, he was a math professor somewhere in Wisconsin and uh, then was made full-time with Pro Football Focus, so now he lives in Cincinnati. It's pretty awesome. He comes on the Purple Podcast regularly, as Courtney does as well. All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and I want to follow up just a bit on some things that Eric said, especially about the NFC North with you, and then we will talk Tony Sperano with Scott Baer, NBC outside uh, out in the Bay Area, who covered him When He was the head coach of the Oakland Raiders. Matt and Courtney in for Mackie and Judd.
2: Sit tight. The Mackie and Judd show will continue in a moment. Do I have your word on that, sir?
3: Mackie and Judd.
2: Absolutely. On 1500 ESPN. Are you ready? Live from the TCL Broadcast Studios. We are ready. Now back to Mackie and Judd. Ready! On 1500 ESPN.
3: Okay, question for you, Courtney. Yes. Aside from the Vikings, So we were talking about our players we're looking at, most interesting storylines of players for training camp coming up. The Vikings rookies report tomorrow. They get on the field Wednesday. Then the veterans report on Friday. Yes. And then it's on. Then it's football for the rest of your life. Uh, Around the league, some camps have already started. What is your number one thing, not Vikings related, that you are interested in going into these... Training camps, number one storyline, player, coach, anything.
0: Well, not Vikings related, but sort of Vikings related. I'm going to be keeping an eye on the former quarterbacks. I'm curious to see some of the position battles. Um, you know, Denver's decided, but you know, today seeing David Johnson taking a handoff from Sam Bradford on my Twitter feed was a sight to see because you haven't seen Sam really that mobile uh, in practice in in months, in almost about a year now. So. Eager to see what happens with Teddy. Uh, the stuff that we were hearing coming out of New York was that he looked excellent and he looked yeah. spry. Uh, but you see p- photos of him during the the summertime. and somebody brought this up on Twitter. I don't know who it was, but if, if you're listening you can you can tweet me. but he had a picture there was a picture of him getting get like an old school car probably back home in Florida. Um, and he had KT tape all over his knee. Mm-hmm. and this was him away from football. This is him just you know out in the community doing whatever. Um makes me wonder if you're wearing k t tape just and that's like you know kinesiology that's it helps with hold your muscles in place all of that, and you're not playing football. I wonder how the knee's doing um that may be all that might always be a question with Teddy Bridgewater surrounding his knee, but by all indications, he was very much in the competition with Sam darnold and josh McCown uh in in jets, you know mini camp and oTA so I'm really gonna keep an eye. As much as we're watching about Kirk Cousins, and you know, you want to know because you're going to be judging Kirk Cousins' success off the relative success that everybody else has.
3: And with uh, Case Keenum in Denver having seen a training camp with Case Keenum, I can tell you that his performance on the field, going 13 and three, was a lot better than it looked in camp. If you Google it, and this is this is like the old Takes Exposed Twitter account, this will make you laugh. At one point, we were all writing articles about Taylor Heineke and Case Keenum being neck and neck.
0: Yeah, for for the backup
3: job. Like, that's a real thing that happened. And then he went out there and whatever he was, twelve and three is as a starter. So will Denver get a little nervous if he struggles during training camp, and how that's going to work out too? As part of that conversation, what quarterback gets hurt? Because if some quarterback gets hurt anywhere, Teddy Bridgewater or Sam Bradford will be probably the one that gets traded there, won't they? You'd think. Because they have you know, the rookie quarterbacks that they probably want to play. The rookie quarterbacks, one in particular, is at the top of my list, and that's Lamar Jackson. Because with Lamar Jackson, that's the one where, A, he should have never fallen the way he did. With what he did in college, his skill set, no way should he have been the 32nd pick. Thirty-second? Yeah, thirty second. No first way. Round. No way should he have been that pick, especially compared to Josh Allen. I mean, th- this guy is a dominant college player and has and can make all the throws and all that, where Allen struggled at Wyoming, yet somehow he ends up 32nd and Allen ends up toward the top. Um, I'll be watching him close because everything that's come out of the Ravens so far has been that he's looked good. Great. Adapted to a pro style
0: offense. Wonder why? Because they ran one in college. Exactly.
3: Exactly. I want to see him win that job, take it from Joe Flacco and be great and have that team be really competitive and him just prove everyone wrong. And the other thing is Pat Shermer in New York and Will Hernandez. I'm interested in Will Hernandez. You're like,
0: I'm interested in every guard that they passed up. Yes. Like I'm interested in the guards that they passed up and every other player that they could have taken in the fifth round other than a kicker so what else and is... the tight ends that they passed up they, they could have gotten one of they instead of trading out of the fourth the third round they could have gotten that tight end what was his name um who went two picks after they traded now it's gonna drive me nuts
3: oh uh goddard no right? no are you thinking of Gisecki? mike nope. gasecki nope hayden hayden hurst nope
0: it was a tight end how it, many tight ends were there there was one in the third round now it's gonna drive me nuts um it wasn't Ian Thomas. Okay, I'm not Wolf. taking
3: a close look at third-rounders.
0: But they traded they traded their pick, and he got picked two picks later.
3: Well, uh, Let me look it up. Those will definitely be toward the top of my list. Um, let me just swing back on Kirk Cousins and what Eric Eager said about Cousins and the supporting cast. You brought up a, an interesting point that will go toward the top of the storylines this entire training camp, which is how does the offensive line impact Kirk Cousins? If it's not great, it sounds like from everything that they've looked at a Pro Football Focus, statistically on Cousins, is his performance tends to swing based on what he has around him. And in 2016, he had one of the best offensive lines in the NFL. I mean, you remember, the Vikings couldn't get to him in that game that they played in D.C. They didn't pressure him hardly at all. And one of the reasons is they have a Hall of Fame left tackle, Trent Williams. And, and so... Williams was hurt last year. They struggle a bit, like you mentioned, all the different offensive line combinations. TJ Clemmings got in a game for Washington last year and immediately allowed a pressure to Kirk Cousins. This will be better than that, probably. But if you're ranking all the things that you worry about going into camp, that has to be number one.
0: I agree. I and what? Just to clarify, it was it was um, Jordan Akins, tight end from oh, Central Florida. Okay. He's four picks later, because they traded. 94. I've forgotten
3: anyone who was not drafted by the Vikings past like the second round.
0: I just remember that being like, wow, they could have picked a tight end anyways. um, I think it's a huge storyline for me. This is the storyline because it was an easily remedied position. You got worse on the offensive line when Joe Berger retired and you needed somebody to fill that void. You caused yourself, I think a bigger headache by planning for the future. This is a win. Now league worry about next year, next year, Get your starting offensive lineman, your starting right guard, um, because we saw what happened. When, I mean, nothing will be as atrocious um, as the situation that they dealt with uh, in Washington last year with the injuries on the offensive line. He had no running backs. Uh, His tight end was out the entire, you know, Jordan Reed was out the entire year. Um, Outside of that, I mean, the defense was not good. So Kirk at least has that as, you know, certainly a safety blanket he's never had. But for me, the offensive line and, and just. If they, if they look back at this and say, hey, we screwed up because we didn't draft it, that's a storyline of the year. And I think that's something that you start looking at at training camp and see how it plays out. Because last year, at this time going into camp, the projected offensive line starting five was much different than it was the day that cuts were announced on September 1st.
3: Yeah. And I try to remember that going in because I feel like it's all set at this moment, but It might not be. I mean, I I feel like, yeah, they're going to have Remmers at the guard, and then Hill's going to play the tackle. But if Hill struggles through training camp and someone else outperforms him, Brian O'Neill drafted in the second round, I mean, they brought in Tom Compton. He's a career backup. But so, I mean, Rashad Hill
0: was a a career practice squad guy before he even got here. Right.
3: So it's very possible that we do end up seeing things shift around or, or moving parts and that even though it worked out last year for the most part that was because they had addition by subtraction getting rid of Alex Boone mm-hmm. in this case you would be really concerned about it and then there also is the injury point where you know they'll happen it's just if they happen on the offensive line it sunk them in the playoffs it nearly sunk them in part in New Orleans where they had some moments uh you know one being the Keenum interception where he just wings it up there, but it's a it's a pressure on him, and there were a few different ones there. And then, of course, in Philadelphia, where everything falls apart. Well, the only reason that that all happened was because of an injury to Nick Easton. So, how well can they possibly adjust if somebody gets hurt up front?
0: Yeah, I mean, they you saw how badly Rashad Hill struggled down the stretch. I mean, he was facing guys like Cam Jordan, and you know the rotation that Philadelphia threw at them on the defensive line. I think he could work in a bubble and potentially be an experiment you go into. I do think Brian O'Neill at some point will play. have to play this season. I think that there's going to be some potential pressure. At tight from, end, right? At, obviously oh, a tight end. You saw him catching passes there at the end of minicamp, which that to me signified that there's going to be either, you know, a jumbo package or something in the goal line where he's brought in to be an extra body, maybe even catch a touchdown pass. Who knows? Um, but I I don't know if the Rashad Hill experiment is one that they want to test out more than a couple of weeks. Maybe they do end up finding somebody, you know, who gets cut at the end of camp, loses their job to, you know, a rookie or loses their job just based on, you know, scheme overall fit, uh, someone even if they just lose their job. So I mean, there's you know, regardless of circumstances, they may f- it may feel like they know who they're going to be having with their their five offensive linemen this season. Keep an eye for that last week that potentially they might be adding pieces, you know, if, if they don't get what they want coming out of Rashad Hill in camp.
3: So the Vikings entering camp this week under difficult circumstances as uh, they lose offensive line coach Tony Sperano. He passes away at age 56 yesterday morning. And we will talk with Scott Baer, who is the Raiders insider for NBC Sports Bay Area, about Sperano and what he learned about him covering. Uh, Sperano when he was the head coach of Oakland and we'll talk about more about how that will impact the Vikings as well Matt and Courtney in for Mackie and Judd
2: Mackie and Judd resume things following these messages that's just about the most fantastic scheme I've heard to date on 1500 ESPN Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad. The decline of moral and ethical integrity. Let's hear it. Mackey and Judd on 1500 ESPN. We're
3: back here on 1500 ESPN. Matthew Collar and ESPN's Courtney Cronin in for Mackey and Judd. Tragic news yesterday. Tony Sperano passing away at the age of 56. He was the Vikings offensive line coach and a former head coach for the Miami Dolphins and with the Oakland Raiders. And to talk about that from... Uh, NBC Sports Bay Area, Raiders insider Scott Baer. Scott, how are you? Pretty good. How's it going? It's going okay. Uh, You know, his time in Oakland was not long for uh, Tony Sperano, but the impression that I get is that he left a lasting impression. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, He came in and really got the offensive line going in a way that the Raiders front office wanted. They uh, have invested a ton in, the, in that offensive front, and they wanted a guy who is experienced, a guy who was is hard-nosed, and a guy who could set a tone um, yelling at you one minute and patting you on the back the very next. He was very good at that, and his time as the interim head coach, which is always a difficult job title to manage because – the only reason why you're ever an interim head coach is because somebody that you know and respect got fired. Uh, the guy who hired you probably got fired. And how you managed that ultimate disappointment that led to the firing, um, it can be a very difficult thing. And I think that Tony managed it as well as you could have. And the, I think the greatest compliment that you could give him about his time in Oakland is they started – 0-10, and that was less because of coaching and more because of an absolute dearth and lack of talent. And uh, on a Thursday night, a rainy Thursday night in, in Oakland against a very good Kansas City Chiefs team in the rain, completely outmanned, outgunned, however you want to say it, uh, he got those guys to play their rears off, and they beat Kansas City. They finished the season 3-3. and That's something incredibly... Uh, To be respected, and ultimately he was a finalist to uh, win the permanent job to get that interim title uh, taken off, despite some disappointing uh, results, and uh, that ultimately went to to Jack Del Rio, but he had every reason to leave with his head held high.
0: With the circumstances surrounding, you know, when Dennis Allen's fired and then, you know, maybe left in London, and then they bring the team back, they, they bury the football, and everything that Tony did to pick up the pieces when as they as they were laying there as you said at Owen 10 start he was there for Derek Carr's first win the one thing i think is interesting um and i'd love for you to touch on more is just the impact that he had with ownership it seems like you know he was able to 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 crack that as a as a guy getting in with the front office and with ownership what was that relationship like where maybe it wasn't the same with coaches that you know before and you know particularly with Dennis Allen
1: yeah i, I think that was something that Tony wanted because with Dennis, um, that that was Mark Davis's. Just a brief chronology is that Al Davis uh, passed on and Mark Davis kind of took over um, chief ownership of the team in 2012. He hired the general manager and then <clears throat> and then Reggie um, ultimately hired Dennis Allen. So that's kind of the structure of how things were. It was a very linear hierarchy, right? Owner talks to GM, GM talks to coach, owner and coach don't. Mix, except on airplanes uh, where he would curse Reggie um, Reggie uh, McKinsey for uh, Dennis Allen's shortcomings. Uh, Tony Soprano didn't want that. He wanted a link to the top. And uh, ultimately he got it, and I think that that fostered the type of relationship that Mark Davis um, – had with, with, with Jack Del Rio kind of showed him a new way of doing things and I think ultimately that was more productive and indeed more of a harmonious type of relationship that was built there. Um, so I think that that really maybe opened Mark Davis's eyes, uh, somewhat. You could maybe, uh, and really kind of taught him about the owner that he wanted to be. And I think he's a pretty good one. I think it's easy to, point at his haircut and laugh and say, you know, he's kind of an aw shucks guy, um, but he's, he actually knows he's more savvy than people give him credit for. The guy's got a stadium being built at um, at a rabbit's pace out there in Vegas, set to make a lot of money, and uh, he just hired John Gruden out of the broadcast booth, so he must be doing something right. And I think ultimately, Courtney, great point is that this kind of evolution of the owner, uh, Tony Sperano, played a small but important role in that.
3: Scott Baer joining us, uh, Raiders insider from NBC Sports Bay Area, Matthew Collar and Cordy Cronin from Mackey and Judd today. What was the reaction from Raiders players yesterday when they got the news, um, the guys that were still there uh, or that are still there now that were coached by Sperano a few years ago?
1: Yeah, there's been a, an extreme amount of roster turnover since 2014, but the 2014 draft class was was the signature moment um, of this franchise's last decade plus since John Gruden left or since they lost the Super Bowl to to Tampa Bay. They got Khalil Mack, they got Derek Carr, they got, uh, you know, a stout right guard and Gabe Jackson and Justin Ellis and those tackle who just signed a three-year extension. And those guys were around when things were terrible. And uh, I think that, again, that, that Tony kind of, you know, taught them how to deal with the the bad times and the disappointment. And, you know, there's a great video circulating after that Chiefs game where he got the game ball from Donald Penn and they end with a closing, uh, you know, we got nobody but us, you know, and really kind of foster that togetherness that those guys were rookies then, now they are. Uh, team leaders, and essential members of a young foundation now. And uh, they experienced the worst, and they experienced, I think, the losing is one thing, because, but, but how you handle it, and how you compartmentalize, and how you um, keep marching forward, even in difficult times. Uh, so those guys were... Uh, They all took to social media, naturally, and a lot of the guys who aren't around anymore did the same thing. And I think ultimately, I mean, Derek Carr said it best, is that he stuck with me as a rookie. There was a time that they got pounded 52 to nothing in St. Louis, um, and the next week there was no doubt about who the quarterback was. I think Tony understood what the concept of that year uh, was at that point. It was to foster and... Established young players, uh, especially, you know, offensive linemen and things like that. So I, I think ultimately, you know, that those are the silver linings that you try to glean from, you know, such a terrible um, situation then and terrible in football terms. Obviously, what his family is going through right now is considerably and exponentially worse than that. Um, but I just think that it goes to it speaks to kind of little impacts that you have just by being yourself. And, you know, like I said, you know, Tony could be really hard and at the same time incredibly kind and genuine. Um, and that comes across in his dealings with the media, even though he talks in a grumble in front of a microphone and wears sunglasses in front of a camera bank. But, you know, his players definitely felt that that when times are going bad, that, that a coach has their back, uh, that always says a lot. It fosters development for uh, talented NFL players the Raiders have now.
0: I want to go back to one of my favorite moments, and it was before I got out to Oakland. Uh, So I was never able to find where the football was buried. I know that (laughs) the exact location is somewhere out on that far wall um, of the mesh fence that uh, lines the practice field. So they come back from London, and Dennis Allen's fired, and Tony's trying to turn over the new leaf. What was that week like when he gathers a team together, they decide they want to bury their past by physically burying a football in just the most mm. ultimate display of a football guy move possible? It just seems like it sums up, if, if there's one moment that can really, outside of the Wildcat and everything else, that sums up his football career, but Tony as a football guy... It doesn't seem like there's any other, you know, in talking to players and coaches who have been around him, that that was who he was, whether some people think it's gimmicky, whether it's shtick, you know, but that was who he was through and through.
1: Yeah, and uh, and he literally brought out a shovel and dug like a, you know, something that you would put a time capsule in, just like a straight, you know, kind of depth, cylinder sort of a shaped deal. And, uh, he put it in there. And what he was trying to do is he was trying to basically say, let's, let's put the past behind us, not of the Owen four start and Dennis Allen getting fired, but really of just a run of losing. Unlike the Raiders franchise had ever experienced. And so just to try to get these guys to focus forward. I, I think if you just go out there and you take the same routine or the same approach, um, you know that doesn't always work. Now, I, I think I think that works well for a group of men um, trying to come together. I think maybe putting it out there, uh, you know, for a fan base to see, kind of made it a bit more of a joke um, than it was intended. And I don't think the players ever took it that way, even if social media does what social media did, what social media can do sometimes. Um, but yeah. It, I think that he was symbolically trying to do that, you know, just to try to get these guys to turn the page because it was, you know, a young group, but it also kind of goes to, if you think about his head coaching experiences, that was one. The other one, if, if I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but when he was in Miami, they were awful. And then boom, they made the playoffs and Mm -hmm. they created a little run for themselves. And, Those types of turnarounds, that's what you want from your interim guy. That's what you want from your new head coach. Um, And I definitely think that that was always there. Uh, Kind of a defining um, thing for me, if I can just offer a quick little anecdote, is um, after the season was over um, and they were going through a a coaching search, Mark Davis was really in charge of it. Reggie wanted Tony to stay. That was his guy. And I think ultimately if he had – the only say I think Tony would have been the head coach for the Raiders in 2015, but they're going through this head coaching search and Mark Davis is flying all over the country, interviewing people and Jack Del Rio got the job and Mike Shanahan was interviewed and uh, some other uh, big name folks. And as they were deciding between Del Rio and Shanahan, um, as Mark Davis was kind of getting together with some of his famous Raiders alumni, ultimately choosing Del Rio Sperano came to work every day. He was still under contract at that time. Coach's contract going in with the last day of the season. They go through um, normally the next month, in like into January uh, at least. And he kept showing up every single day. Normally coaches that think they're going to get fired or don't have any guarantee of employment, generally they don't always come back. And, you know, that they're allowed to kind of pursue other interests as both of as a coaching staff from the Raiders last year was. But he kept showing up every single day. He kept going over tape and acting like he still had the job because that's what he knew to do. He was a workman. He was a football guy, guys that other football guys respect. And I think that that is something when he didn't have to, when the handwriting was basically on the wall the night before they ultimately chose Del Rio. Sperano hadn't been told specifically yet. The word wasn't made official, and he showed up to work that day, and he stayed and he kept working that night. Um, I think that that goes to show what I'm sure a lot of Vikings fans who, you know, who saw that offensive line drive or guys who swear by him up there, uh Latavius Murray is one of those crossover guys, was in Oakland when when Tony was in the East Bay and is now in Minnesota. Can definitely speak to that. But that uh that's my that's my Tony Sperano kind of memory is that even when the handwriting was on the wall it didn't matter. That wasn't in his nature to stop work and stop grinding uh even in a January with uh with another season eight eight months away.
3: Scott, tremendous insight on Tony Sperano. Appreciate you dropping by, and uh, maybe we'll do it again during uh, better circumstances.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks, Scott. That is uh, Scott bear B-A-I-R. Follow him at N B C S. He is the Raiders insider for NBC Sports Bay Area. Great stuff there on a guy who um, fit in perfectly with the offensive lineman, with his work ethic, that if you're going to earn the respect of the big guys, I think you have to be that way, and he did in Oakland, and he did in Minnesota as well. So Tony Sperano, 56 years old, and now the Vikings start the training camp and the season here with uh, really heavy hearts. So uh, we'll come back, we'll wrap things up, and uh, we will talk about an interesting story with college football. Maybe some more information will be available for those of you who like to occasionally place a wager Legally, of course, on uh, college football. We'll be back.
2: Don't go anywhere. More Mackie and Judd coming up next. Oh, no, that's just what they'll be expecting us to do. On 1500 ESPN. Live from the TCL Broadcast Studios, Mackie and Judd are back. <laughs> You've been ratted out, boys. On 1500 ESPN.
3: ESPN. You have hot sports takes. I'm afraid to share your opinions on the local teams. Do you want a show right here on 1500 ESPN? If you answered yes to those questions, then 1500 ESPN's Sportscaster Idol is for you. We are holding a competition to find our next host, with the winner receiving their very own show for a full year. Entries are being accepted through this coming Sunday, July 29th. Get it done. More details: 1500ESPN.com. So as gambling becomes legal, and I'm sure will be legalized in more and more states across the country, that will change things for how certain sports handle what they do, I think, Courtney. And you discovered an interesting story about college football and somewhere where it could make an impact that would make only legal betters. I just want to... Make sure I say that, that only people who are legally gambling in only the one or two states that it is allowed would be thinking about this. But yes. maybe bring up the story that you found.
0: Uh, it's Big Ten Media Days <laughs> down in Chicago. Um, so kicking things off was Commissioner Jim Delaney, who was in favor of identifying players that you know are not available because of suspension or injury. College football, I mean, coaches don't like talking about injuries anywhere, most of them. College football, it's almost kind of, I not want to say taboo, but you're going to get more pushback on why players aren't around. or And they don't have to specify. They don't have an injury report. They don't have anything like that. So if a guy's out, you either find out because he's wearing a cast of some sort or you find out other ways. So to quote Jim Delaney, we probably should have done it before. We need to do that nationally. When players are unavailable, we should know that. And that's in reference to putting out some sort of sheet Uh, That lets you know who's not playing, and you know whether it's injury or suspension. I think that's important because, you know, if this thing is going to be legal in in certain states, and if there is a law in place protecting it, college football needs to abide by it, just as college basketball, any sport that is legally able to have wagers. Should have bided on it just the way the teams in the pros. Too. I'm sure
3: college football coaches will be thrilled by this, considering that Jim Harbaugh refused to put the roster on their website.
0: Yeah, I mean it's. <laughs> I, de- I dealt with Dan Mullen, who walked out of the room when someone asked him about injuries. Like, guys want to ask in- about injuries? Put his hand on like the podium. He's like, okay, I'm out. And they just coaches are clinically insane as i've said before college coaches take that to another level when you ask about injuries yeah
3: you're only the highest paid person in the state so why should you be held accountable for anything that you do is kind of how they generally look at yes. it um but i do think that we are in for uh, maybe a number of different changes i don't i don't know what they might be but if states start to oops sorry knocked over my can if uh states start to legalized gambling. My guess is that it will be picked up more and more and more as we go along, especially because of the amount of just tax money you could possibly bring in. Um, Then I, I think that even though, especially the NFL has known this for a long time about how to cater to gamblers, the other leagues might start to catch up to think about it even more when they go into their their seasons or how they approach their marketing or whatever else it might be and i know that some leagues have started thinking about creating their own fantasy leagues on their team website so you would go in and pay whatever and you could win x number of dollars or whatever prizes and you pick you know a player who's going to hit a home run tonight or you pick a team for the season of vikings players or or whatever you get one wide receiver you get one running back or something like that, and then you compete against other people. I don't know if it works perfectly for single teams, but maybe you do it on mm-hmm. a game-to-game basis. You pick a certain number of players. I think those things will start to come out more and more from teams as this goes along. And how college football has gotten away with this for this long of not having injury reports is
0: mind-boggling. I mean, it makes people's jobs harder, and I just think that you know, it's, it's 2018. It's going to get out there whether the colleges wanted or not just be, get a, get ahead of it like like you're saying with these leagues get ahead of sports wagering so you can make a profit on it somehow where you're controlling the you're controlling what's being out there what's being bet on and you're controlling it in a way that brings you a bigger profit i you know be smart about it all right we do a
3: podcast called The Purple Podcast. If you've never heard of it, make sure you go subscribe to it. I will be in until Thursday every day here with Judd, and Mr. Mankato odds are coming out. So you are going to be want to be around for that. And then you can bet on Mr. Mankato.